1: Welcome back in on 670 The Score. It is me, Matt Spiegel, here with you on Hit & Run. We are here until Cubs pregame at about 12.35. If you are just turning on the radio or have not been with me since the top of the show, you missed a lot of conversation about the specifics of last night's brutal loss for the Cubs against the Brewers. Um, That quickly joins the ranks of single-game losses that could be categorized as the worst loss of the season. It's a game where you Darvish showed he was healthy enough to give you five brilliant innings, struck out seven, threw only 72 pitches, had to come out. It's a game where Kyle Ryan, your most trusted left-hander in the bullpen, can't get any lefties out in his stint. Ends up giving up a run. Couldn't get the lefties out. He's been so good. Just, just a brutal game that ended up being, I don't know, an either an emblem or a microcosm, depending on how you want to think about it, of the year. A game where the Cubs had uh, they retake the lead two to one, even though they only score one run with the bases loaded and nobody out in the eighth inning against the Brewers. They do take the lead because Anthony Rizzo draws a walk, so at least there was that. But bases loaded, nobody out. You had a strikeout by Castellanos against Josh Hader. And Castellanos has been great, but Josh Hader can be absolutely filthy. And When you get behind, you're in trouble. Pitch number one from Hader to Castellanos was 97, perfectly across the top of the zone. Takes it, strike one. Pitch number two, an evil slider. Coming out of the same tunnel that lands around the feet, but Castellanos swings and misses. Then he's 0-2 and he's in trouble. So one out, bases loaded. Then Anthony Rizzo draws the walk. At least you get a run. Chris Bryant with a pop-up with the bases loaded. And one out. Slams the bat down because he knows you got to do more than that. He knows you got to at least get a fly ball and get in an extra run. But they only get one. It's 2-1. to one. And at that point, the only guy warming up in the bullpen was David Phelps. And... I'm on the couch wondering why is David Phelps the only guy warming up? What if they take a lead and then they do take a lead? Why is David Phelps still the only guy warming up? Oh, Derek Holland is joining him now. Okay. And here comes David Phelps to start the eighth inning. You have a two to one lead and you have both Brandon Kinsler and Rowan Wick available. And those are your two best even and ahead guys. It is not ideal. This is not a great situation for Joe on a nightly basis, the roster as it is constructed in terms of the bullpen is not ideal for Joe. Tremendous challenges. There's plenty of blame to go around for everybody involved in last night's game. But seeing David Phelps in that game just it, it just it it drove me a little batty, and I know I'm not alone. Kinsler and Wick for the eighth and ninth. Let's go. But Joe decided he wanted to go with Phelps against Yasmani Grandal. And then Holland against Yelich, uh, and then Wick for four outs. That was the idea. That was the plan. If you're going to use two righties, use Kinsler and Wick. Don't you know? He said he didn't want to use Kinsler, but then Kinsler ends up coming in in the ninth inning. So what is it, So which was it? Uh, yes, I, I, manager's built to be second-guessed, and this game had lots of it. And I'm doing it right here for you. I I, I have to. Can't help it. 3 one 67-67. 6, a tough night of bullpen management for Joe, in my opinion. David Phelps comes in, throws one pitch. He has, has Monty Grandal, a home run the opposite way. Uh, it, it's a tie game. Good night, everybody. In comes Holland for Yelich. And, and then we get Wick. And Yelich uh, ends up getting pitched around. That was one of the walks, right? Yelich reached base five times last night. And then he stole another base. Stole three bases last night. Did Christian Yelich unbelievably great player and then wick uh has some trouble but manages to get out of the eighth inning you're tied at 2-2 going to the ninth, and in the ninth inning addison russell incredibly frustrating the last three nights has made a throwing error and this one to 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 kick off that inning really I mean, it's part of why you ended up having Christian Yelich get an at-bat in the first place in the ninth inning. By the time they get to Yelich and there's two outs and it's Kinsler versus Yelich, the decision then is do you walk Yelich and move the winning run to second base into scoring position or do you try to get Yelich with Kinsler? Um, I'm not as upset about that choice as a lot of you are. You know, walking Yelich to get to, it's going to be Eric Thames. Um, yeah, I, I, I get it because Yelich is the MVP and he's, he's Barry Bonds these days, as Joe said after the game, and he's not wrong. So if that's the case, then yeah, you probably should have walked him. But they didn't. Kinsler, by the way, uh, had been very good against Yelich. Yelich, before that last night, one for nine against Brandon Kinsler. And if you were watching, the first two pitches were brilliant. Sinking fastball, bottom of the zone, strike. And then a sinking fastball, outside corner, just off the zone, swinging strike. He's 0-2 on Yelich. And a brilliant moment from Jim Deshays in there as Yelich battled and fouled some pitches off, didn't swing at one in the dirt, and got it back to 2-2. Two and two. Deshays at one point said in there, you know when you're ahead of a guy like Yelich, I think you're better off just going right after him instead of uh, letting him fight his way back into the at-bat it was a complete agreement. I was just hoping to see more of those fastballs just off the zone or just on the bottom. And you know what? In it ends up being, if you look at the pitch chart of what Kinsler did to Yelich, his pitches were really good. They were all just off the zone, just outside of the box or just on the edges. Control was on point for Brandon Kinsler last night. But Yelich is really good. He goes down and he gets one and puts it the opposite way off the wall in left field. And that's where Kyle Schwarber misplayed it. Now, look, there are seven things that were wrong with that game before we get to this. But there is no denying um, that, that that is a ball that Kyle Schwarber needs to concede the double on, play it off the wall, and keep that winning run at third base. You got it. He can't dive for it or, you know, go for it full tilt, get out of control, slide, have it bounce back behind you, and then you have no shot. And I don't even think the, the, the runner tries to score if Schwarber plays it, um, it, concedes the double and plays it off the wall. Or if he does, you'll have a shot with a relay throw. But that that's the play. But I'm not bagging too hard on Schwarber because I said there's like seven other things. What you had last night in that brutal loss was a lot of different factors, which are just kind of detailed for you. And this unfortunate truth, that the best player on either team is Christian Yelich. And according to Craig Council after the game last night, he said that was the best game he's ever seen Yelich have. Got on base five times, stole three bases, every one of them were impactful, accepting his walks, getting pitched around, the pitching changes made because of him. Talk about a guy affecting the game in multiple, multiple ways. That's Christian Yelich last night. And then he battles in that at bat and hits the game winner. Last night, Christian Yelich became the 10th player all time to have at least 40 home runs and at least 30 stolen bases. He's going to win the MVP again. Also because he might end up with 50 and 30. Well, I'll say this. If they make the playoffs, he's going to win the MVP again. It's him or Bellinger, and Bellinger's slowed down quite a bit. Anthony Rendon has a shot as well, and Rendon's been phenomenal. And if the Nats keep making their charge, you know, I think it's between Rendon and Yelich, frankly, at this point, unless Bellinger has a great final couple of weeks. But I I have this feeling it's going to be Yelich again after the way he's playing now here in September. So that's the best guy on either team, and he has that kind of game last night. And he's got a shot to become the first ever 50-home run, 30-RBI guy. He's the first 40-30 guy since, you know this one? Ryan Braun, since his own teammate. Royds, Royds, FedEx. (laughs) Matt Kemp should have won the MVP. But anyway, there you are. It's a brutal loss. And the red-hot Arizona Diamondbacks have won again. They've won 11 out of 12. They are one and a half games back of the Cubs for the second wild card. The Cardinals won again. They are three and a half games up on the Cubs for the National League Central. It is a, a daunting and difficult moment right here for the Cubs. And now you get the news about Javier Baez's hairline fracture to the thumb. And it is concerning. It is deeply concerning. And you feel like the season is hanging on by a thread. Probably because it is. But, hey, good vibes, babe. Speaks, where are the good vibes? Um, uh, Let's see. Contreras should play today because John Lester is catching. So you won't see two off days in a row for... A guy who came back and immediately went six for eight and impacted the game massively in his first two. You won't see, won't see a, another game where he doesn't have a single at bat. Um, there's no way that Albert Almora is going to lead off again today. There's no way that that can happen again today, right? So yeah, my God, Spiegel, you're negative. I'm sorry. I don't want to be negative. I don't. I don't like it. I don't want to be a guy coming in here being a curmudgeon, being a a, a cynical jamoke, but look, you have to admit where things are. And it, it's not, it's not good. It doesn't feel good. What you've got as uh as something to hold on to is seven of the last 10 against the St. Louis Cardinals. That's your chance. And the diamondback schedule is incredibly good. Um, adv- advantageous for them. So, yeah, there's, there's a chance that they miss out on that second wild card. And then, then what kind of reckoning are we dealing with at that point? How, how serious is the reckoning? The reckoning is going to be pretty serious anyway. And what does it mean? We will find out. Tough stuff. John Lester later on today against the Brewers. Texture says, why did it take a week for the team to x-ray Baez's thumb? No, they did x-ray. They did x-rays immediately, and the x-rays were negative. That's, that's why they eventually called for an MRI, and it's a hairline fracture which sometimes does not show up on the x-ray depending on the angle and the way that the, uh, the fracture is there. So it's, uh, it's been an absolutely uh, brutal stretch for several different people, and it's tough to watch at a really inopportune time. Craig Kimbrell, hopefully back by Thursday, is the very latest that we have heard. Um, but they might, hopefully they will have to protect some leads without him, and it'll go better than it did last night. Eno Saris of The Athletic will join us a little bit later on. We are going to be here, hit and run, until Zach Zayman with Cubs pregame at about 12.35, 12.40. Coming up next, a man who coached three first-round draft picks on the same high school team, and they're all great. Flat out great right now in Major League Baseball. We talk to him next. And one of them is a White Sox pitcher.
2: What you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. On three and two to Cruz. He struck him out. Big smile and rightfully so. Lucas Giolito once again aces a mammoth lineup. He has shut out the Astros and the Twins. He is a giant killer.
1: Lucas Giolito, great call by Jason Bonetti. Sometimes I'll, uh, I'll get calls or texts from people who say, ah, who's Giolito beating? Well, complete game shutouts against the Astros and the Twins is something. On the year, Giolito is 14-8 with a 3.27 ERA. Tremendous year. We've dissected his transformation quite a bit. Um, But he is not the player from his Harvard Westlake High School team with the most wins on the year. That is Max Fried of the Atlanta Braves. He is 16-4 with a 3.86 ERA. But neither of those guys are the starting pitcher with the best ERA in the second half of baseball's 2019 season from their same high school team at Harvard Westlake, because Jack Flaherty was on that team too. And he has a second half ERA of 0.85. That's Jack Flaherty's ERA in the second half, as the Cardinals have made this tremendous run to getting atop the National League Central. How the hell did those three guys play on the same high school team and did that team ever lose a game? I have questions. We will get answers from Matt Lacour, who is now the athletic director at Harvard Westlake High School out there in California, and was at the time the varsity baseball coach. Do I have all that correct, Matt?
2: You got it all correct. Except we, did. <laughs> I'll just start off and let you know we did lose a few games that year. Well,
1: how? <laughs> how did that happen? Where did 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 other people pitch occasionally? Is that what happened, Matt? Or you know
2: well absolutely other people pitched and um as the story goes lucas went down pretty early in their year about yeah 6 games into it with an injury and uh it's california high school baseball at the division 1 level every time we go out onto the field we're usually facing pretty good opponents so uh it's baseball. It happens.
1: Yeah. Um, there were some real good players on some of the teams that you opposed that went on to be in the, in the bigs. I know there was another team that had Ryan Healy, um, future uh, Oakland A's first baseman, Ryan Healy. There were, what, what, what other uh, future MLB guys were on some high school teams around California around that time? If you remember, Matt.
2: Oh gosh. Um, Ryan McMahon at modern day. I, I know we lost the game to Modern day, out in North Carolina, about midway through that year, Ryan McMahon had a big game against us, um, put one out of the yard that kind of mm-hmm. sealed the deal against us. I'd have to go back, but I, I'll be honest, uh, you know, most of the teams we face out here, they've got multiple Division One guys, and whether they make it to the big leagues or not. They're really good high school baseball players, and they go on to have really good college careers. So, uh, no shame in dropping a couple of games that year.
1: Understood. Uh, we won't hold it against you. Um, uh, so, so Lucas comes first. Lucas Giolito is is the first of the three that ends up getting there. Um, and he's six six now, but he was a little shorter. What six two? What kind of what, what kind of pitcher was Lucas Giolito when you got a hold of him, Matt?
2: Uh, the body was big as an incoming freshman. It was all arms and legs, six two, six three. He was still growing, but he had not filled out at all. And quite honestly, he left high school pretty thin. Um, nothing like the body that you see now on TV. Um, he was all over the place. You know, he was growing so fast that he just couldn't find his uh, his release point from day to day. We had to keep him on the varsity team as a freshman because. Putting him on the JV team posed a bunch of problems. Like, did we have somebody who could catch him down there when he was throwing high 80s, close to 90? And it wasn't easy to catch. It was all over the yard. So um, that was a problem. And Hmm. also, JV hitters weren't going to swing. So it was better for him to just practice with the varsity, continue to refine his mechanics. Um, So that freshman year was a great, maturation point for him in terms of physically just kind of finding out what his body was doing on a daily basis.
1: Well, wow, that's really interesting. And then, and then as he developed, I mean, by the time um, he, he graduates and by the time he gets into the system with the Nationals, he's thrown a lot of different pitches, five, six, maybe even seven uh, different, different pitches. Um, what was the arsenal that he was, that he was using by the time he was a senior and was really, really good for you?
2: He was a fastball, curveball change guy, and the changeup was a far and away third pitch, nothing like it is now. Um, It was great some days, and it was horrific other days, just finding the release point and the grip that we wanted to use. um, That that was a tough deal for him. And throwing changeups in high school when you throw 95, 96, Sometimes you're just letting the ball, you know, the, the pitch speed get into the barrel of the bat, and so you don't use it a ton. Um, the curveball was a plus pitch. It was big. It didn't have necessarily the command you would want, but the shape of the pitch was something that you can project out to be a plus pitch in the big leagues already. Mm. Um, but he was a fastball guy.
1: Yeah, it's, 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 it's so interesting. And uh, and the pitching coach for you guys at the time was Ethan Katz, right? Um, yeah. And Ethan Katz is now in the Giants system, and, and I've told the story, and others have this year in Chicago media of how Lucas went back and worked uh, with Ethan in the offseason. It was one of the many facets of what's been a tremendous transformation. So uh, it, were you guys doing – do, doing anything super special, or were you, were you just kind of were you up to speed on as much as you possibly could in terms of training and 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 working with these guys technically?
2: Yeah, I think we were probably at the forefront in terms of player progression at, at our level. Um, it's nothing like it is nowadays with the analytics and the spin rate, which now in high school we actually use and we we have access to that stuff. Back then we didn't, but Wow, Ethan was really pivotal in, in Lucas's um, development. He came in, I want to say, his sophomore year, um, and his freshman year. If you can imagine, the Chicago people will, you know, appreciate this. Lucas had a little bit of a Rick Sutcliffe wrap the ball around his back pause in his delivery that we spent his entire senior year trying to get rid of, <laughs> um, and it, it it wasn't pretty. It was causing him at his size to not be able to find his release point consistently and so we got through that as freshman year and then Ethan came in and it was really a blessing that he could now spend all day with our pitchers down in the bullpen not just talking mechanics but talking mentality of pitching and pitching at a high level that was a really big development for Lucas and our pitching staff at our school and uh, he did a great job and obviously Ethan's gone on to do great things in pro baseball and making a great name for himself.
1: Yeah, it's, it's amazing um, how much Lucas has changed through the years. The stuff has always been there. The arm's been there, even with Tommy John interrupting things, and he was still a first-round pick, even though he had just coming off the Tommy John surgery. Um, but it's... Still, even just this past uh, this past offseason, he's had to get rid of something. Like, so you got rid of the Sutcliffe thing, but then there was more. There was like a stride, and there was just he's gangly. There's a lot of stuff that goes on if he's not careful, right?
2: Yeah, no doubt about it. And and you know, you talk about these guys that are, are major league players, and they get a knock sometimes as pitchers for not being athletes, but the pitching, you know, delivery is a very athletic movement and if you're not on top of it and if you're not changing and developing as your body is continuing to change it's going to go haywire and obviously lucas has had his struggles along the way like most big league uh, guys that get to the big leagues have but the determination in him to continue to try and get better and for the last offseason for him to make the changes he made and to go into that full bore that takes some confidence and some grit and some determination that I don't think a lot of guys would have. I'm already in the big leagues. I'm making a good salary, and now I'm just going to change everything. Yeah. Um. Even though he had a bad year, that's that's hard to do. And so, a lot of credit to Lucas and his confidence level and the work he put in in the off season. That's paying off this year, obviously. Yeah, I couldn't
1: agree more. Because there's like there's five or six different things that he did, and I and I'm fascinated by brain canics, the neural feedback thing that he was using. I'm fascinated by the change in arsenal where he's going to the uh, four seam fastball and gone away completely from the two seam fastball. Um, but I had a chance to ask him, uh, Matt, um, which was the most important, and he said the most important was the mental willingness to make the changes, and he credited his wife. Like, they sat down, they talked about it, and he's like, I have to try different things. And then every everything else that he did um, has had an effect, but it's that initial willingness, like like you mentioned. they um, are talking to Matt LaCour, who is a high school coach for Lucas Giolito at Harvard-Westlake in California. So Lucas is there, and then this 14-year-old kid, uh, Jack Flaherty, shows up who wants to play shortstop, I think. Um, and, but he felt he was going to play shortstop, but you could tell he had a pretty good arm too, right?
2: Uh, not just arm, but Jack was a freak athlete. Was he? Not not, not just, uh, hey, I want to play shortstop. Like as a freshman, walk in and be the best athlete on the field no matter who we play. Wow. Um, he's a freak. And the things that Jack couldn't do athletically, not just on the baseball field, but if he wanted to, he could have been our starting quarterback, and he could have run the two or three on our basketball team really, really special athlete. And so he came in, and that just kind of solidified things for us in terms of having another option for the long term. Um, We knew he was great. We knew he was going to be really good as a pitcher. But early on, you were kind of wondering, hey, is that velocity going to be where it needs to be in order to be an elite pitcher for, like, a major league draft prospect? Mm -hmm. We all kind of thought, hey, position player-wise, he's going to get drafted, and he's a potential first-rounder for a long, long time until probably – Midway through his spring season of his senior year, where the bat just wasn't developing and the pitching was just taken to another level, um, completely different makeup as a pitcher than Lucas. Though Jack could hit a spot the day he walked onto campus. Um, wow! There was no there was no mechanical issues with Jack Flaherty that we had to work with. The free flowing body movement that this kid had from the very beginning was special and so I think the most credit we can take for Jack Flaherty is that we didn't screw him up um and <laughs> we let the body continue to develop the way it was going to develop and obviously he's gone on to do special things I wish he would uh show the bat a little bit more because I know he's a pretty good hitter but um he's obviously doing his his, his stuff on the mound right now and I'm, Really really high level so
1: that 's so about it 's so good the, as you should be that 's so interesting, Matt, to hear like about them as different guys and also different athletes and boy we, we, uh, a lot of us knew that guy in high school who could have done anything athletically yeah, um, no doubt. And, and, and even at even with the collection of athletes uh, at at that school who it 's a very high end school in all sorts of different ways. He stood out as the best guy on the field for either team as soon as he showed up as a freshman. That's that's insane to think about
2: that. Yeah, it is. And and I would I would go on record and say that um Max Freed was also a freak type athlete. All right, before we get, um, before
1: we get to that, um, I, I have, I've heard the story, but tell people how this happens. You guys have to go out and recruit Max Freed because the school that he was going to um, stopped having baseball. And you've got, and you've got this team with Giolito and with Flaherty, and you're like, all right, well, let's go get Max Freed. He's, he's pretty damn good because he'd been great for a rival high school or maybe just a different high school. And then and, and then how does the recruiting work? Like uh, what's legal and is what you did legal where you brought a bunch of the other players, um, you guys took them out to dinner, right?
2: Yeah, well, that was not a coach-driven move. I didn't know that that was going on at the time. And
1: okay. good for
2: our players for going out there and advocating for us. And that means they believed in what we were doing. But that's cool. Max played at a school that um, their home field was, I mean, it was a walk down the street from us. Um, we all knew who Max Freed was, but we didn't play that school. They were a little bit smaller, so we never kind of ran across them. They shut down their athletics program, and as a senior, Max had nowhere to play high school baseball. Um, our school, if you know anything about it, highly academic. We don't take transfers in senior year traditionally. That's just not something we do, but our school administration looked at this one and said, hey, the, the, this kid has nowhere to play. He's a really high-end student this makes sense for us. Let's, let's, let's explore it. He came on campus, filled out an application. I I'm assuming that happened after our guys courted him. Hmm. Um, but he fit the profile of a normal Harvard Westlake student in the classroom, which made it a really easy fit for us. Um, and personality wise, he wanted to be really good, not just in the classroom, but on the field. So that was something we wanted to do as a pro, um, as a school. And, uh, Thankfully, our admissions director, Elizabeth Gregory, and our president, Tom Hudnut, at the time, kind of said, yeah, let's go for it.
1: That's pretty cool. So, so all three of them are, are together. Do you, do you recall the feeling? What, was there a moment? Maybe it happened a lot. I, I should look at the game log of that year in the schedule. Yeah, did they start back to back to back? Or did you ever, ever use all three of them in the same game? What were their roles like at the time?
2: Well, because Lucas went down so early, I think it was the sixth game of the year when he went down, we mm. never really got to fully explore the extent of what that staff could be. Mm. Um, we, we went into the season, hey, Lucas is our number one, Max is our number two, and Jack is kind of our number two B. Um, Jack was going to be our number two regardless. Um, when Max showed up, that kind of allowed us to use him in a little bit different role more as an athlete on the field primarily, and then use them as an arm um, in our third game of the week. But, um, yeah, so those first six games, we were rolling. <laughs> and you, I always explain it to people. Like, you, you know, as a head coach, you, you go to bed the night before, and a lot of how you feel about how things are going to go the next day is determined by who's going to get the ball to start the game. Well, for six games – I slept like a baby. Um, (laughs) You knew who was getting the ball and you knew they were going to be the best pitcher on the field. And we had a pretty good arsenal to go around them too. I think it's uh, important to note that the guy who caught all these guys, Arden Pabst was huge in their development. Um, He's a double a player now for the Pittsburgh pirates. This wasn't just the max Jack and Lucas show. This was a really, really good team. And so we were kind of rolling there for the first six games until Lucas went down, and obviously uh, we had to kind of patch it up after that. And we still had a great season, but it wasn't exactly the way it was supposed to go.
1: Wow, um, it's it it must have been uh, must, must have been quite interesting. To have uh, have those arms there, and it's too bad you only had, had the six game run. But now here they are in the big leagues. They've all they've all their individual stories and the ups and downs. And Lucas's is very well documented in town. But here they are, all now pitching well, and they apparently have a text thread the three of them where they check in after every start for any of them. And, and, and I, I, I don't think they've all started on the same day yet, Matt. I've been looking sometimes the two of them will start on one day and then Max will start the next day. I think there was a, there were two times through the rotation in a row that were kind of like that. But what, what does it feel like uh, for you to see to see three of your guys on the same highlight show every once in a while?
2: Yeah, I don't think they've all started on the same day yet either. Um, I, I do a pretty good job of trying to set the date of when each is starting and, click that game on at some point in time and see them and what they're doing. But the, the run that these guys have been on over the last six months, all in the big leagues, all having huge success. I don't know that that's ever been done by three guys that were on the same high school team. Um, it, it doesn't seem likely. Um, it's also really gratifying to see these guys still relying on each other. Um, more than the baseball stuff that we try and teach around here and i think we do a really good job of that um those guys developing that relationship that's carried through um the years after high school is really neat to see and them relying on each other when they have a bad outing when they have a good outing celebrating each other um that's pretty special to see and um i'm just kind of sitting back hoping they continue to do it because it's really fun to watch and It'll be fun to kind of reconnect when they get back to LA this summer um, and see everybody and get them back out the field throwing when they resume their activity. That they uh, they'll continue to push each other. I think that this is a healthy um, environment for them where they want to maybe outdo each other, but in a healthy way. And and they're competing to be as good as they can be. And that's that type of mindset's going to kind of drive them i think for a long time in their careers
1: it's kind of it's kind of the dream for a rotation on a given team you know probably for you in a high school sense and certainly in the big league sense that you have three four five guys who who you know like the braves with smoltz and, and and maddox and glavin and you know, steve avery or whoever like all those guys would play golf together and just you know and try to outdo each other um and for these guys to have that across three different franchises that's that's pretty remarkable. You got, Do you have a parental feeling about it, Matt? I, I would assume that there's part of it in, in that feeling. Yeah,
2: you know, um, you, you do, and I think I've explained this before. I think watching them compete is as close as you're going to get to having that feeling as a parent. I have two daughters that play competitive athletics, and I know what that feels like when you are watching them compete, and so... Yeah, you know, when they go out and they do well, the heart rate starts to kind of jump, especially when you get to kind of be there in person and watch them do their thing. Um, It's fun, and, 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 you know, when they're struggling, that is also kind of a heart-wrenching type of thing, that you're not there every day, and they've got to figure this thing out on their own, and hopefully they're mature enough to do that. So, yeah, it's it's a special feeling to watch them pitch live and, and on TV and, you know, kind of live and die with their success and their failures.
1: What a pleasure to talk to you, Matt. Thank you so much for the time um, and connecting some of the dots of a story. It's, it seems like every time I've mentioned that they went to the same high school, there's always at least one person in the audience who's like, what, huh? What are you talking about? Like, a, so it keeps, it keeps kind of gaining momentum as a, as an amazing factoid. And uh, uh, thanks for the conversation. Really enjoyed it.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. You got it. That is Matt LaCour. That is Matt LaCour, the uh, high school athletic director at Harvard Westlake High School in L.A. And at the time they were all there. He was the coach for those guys. Pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff, and I love that they're all tight. 670, the score is where you are. Top of the hour, Eno Saris from The Athletic on some interesting trends around MLB and development because that's all that's going on today in sports. It's a great baseball day. Lots of interesting baseball activity this afternoon. There's nothing else of consequence happening today in sports. Uh, By the way, Zach, remind me to set all three of my fantasy football lineups at the commercial break, okay? Got to set all of those. Make sure I get in there, okay. Do you have brown well he's not allowed to play. He's not allowed to play today. He'll play next week against the Dolphins. Did he just engineer the whole thing was he was that a phony scare, a phony, insane thing over the last three weeks so we could join the Patriots? If he did, he's a genius i mean i don't think I don't think that's that's the case. I think he's more um Carl Everett, you know, like legit. Legit, mercurial, and a bit crazy.
2: Well, with our slow internet, I didn't have time to look into it. But we apparently, he consulted Mort. Like, like Mort reported that he consulted like a social media people to see how he could get out of Oakland faster.
1: No, he did this. Oh, crazy like a fox, Antonio Brown. <sighs> uh, anybody notice what the Patriots? Uh, it's, uh, come on, shut up, Spiegel. It's baseball season, but they do have Demarius Thomas and josh gordon and antonio brown and julian edelman all of a sudden but that's neither here nor there when we come back uh two white Sox players with tremendous individual achievements in sight one's already gotten there um and one uh is on the precipice of doing something very very cool we'll talk about that before we talk to eno saris at the top of the hour on hit and run it is 670 the score welcome back in on hit and run on 670 the score uh, so, Jose Abreu now has 30 home runs and, one R- and 100 RBIs in four of his six big league seasons. That's pretty awesome. He is on a list of, of guys. He's the fourth White Sox player to have four seasons with 30 homers and 100 RBIs. And there happens to be a former host of Hit and Run wandering the hallways here at Entercom Chicago. Where is he, by the way? I don't know where he is. Uh, uh, where's Jesse? Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> jesse barry <laughs> joe ostrowski yeah, that's funny mad about a call it and george Hoffman is here you're hello again everybody to, i would say you're supposed to be upstairs at bbm but now you're down the hall well not yet no no okay. not yet well that's not, not yet. it's
0: neither here nor there soon
1: so the fourth White Sox player to have four seasons of thirty homers well, and hundred RBIs. It's, it's
0: got to be Canerco. Yes, Thomas. Five of them. Frank Thomas. Mags. You
1: nailed it. Frank yeah. Thomas eight times. Paul Canerco five times. Maglio Ordonez four times to go along with Jose Abreu. Tremendous year. We, I were, look- just,
0: we were just Rick Ray and I were just talking about him in terms of what they're going to pay him to stay because uh-huh. they're going to pay him to stay. I agree my guess is three years, and I'm going to guess between 65 and 70. That's a guess.
1: Wow, I don't, I, don't know. I don't know if they'll give him that much.
0: Well, you know, he's making 16 this year. He's going to wind up leading the league in RBIs. I mean, that's pretty darn good when you consider that his uh, on-base is down, but the guy's going to wind up, with 33 or 34 and 120? Yep. I don't know you can you can judge how old you think he is, but he's having a hell of a year.
1: Um I think they would like to give him a 2-year deal with a team option for maybe, a third. And maybe. I th- and I think his desire to be here will probably enable that. You mean take less. Or at least the the years. So Yeah, that's possible. So maybe sure. maybe 2 years at 45 or 50. Something like that.
0: Yeah, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah.
1: Um, but he's he wants to be here, and he and he should be here, even though they've got a glut of first base DH types coming. You don't know that they're well, all the going to pan thing, out.
0: The one thing that I admire about him is that his defense is considerably better. I I you know a year ago I'd have said this guy just is the butcher cannot play first, mm-hmm. and he's improved. The question now is, can Tim Anderson? get to the next level defensively. He because needs he, to. He needs to. I mean, you could look at him as being a, a batting champ in the league, but how many errors does he have? 20. He still leads the league or the majors, right? In errors. Or he's pretty close. Wow. And that's not a good thing. And he missed a month. <laughs> yeah,
1: that is not a good thing. But <laughs> Tim Anderson winning the batting title would be pretty cool yes. for, the, for the White Sox. Yes. That'd be a pretty neat thing. Let,
0: let me, let me, but before I go back to uh, upstairs. Yeah. Is that where we are? I forget. forget. I, I don't know where Anyhow, we are, but I had another list We, to throw we, you, we were ahead. talking about the, what the Cubs might do in the offseason. And the thought is, okay, well, people are saying trade Chris Bryant, which is the easiest thing in the world to say. The question becomes maybe two or threefold. Say you want to do that. How do you replace him? Where do you trade him? What do you trade him for? And remember, he has two years left before he comes, becomes
1: extremely wealthy. You are going to get a lot um, for Chris Bryant.
0: No, no, it's not a matter of a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of who and
1: for what. Well, the question is, are you looking to just reshuffle and continue your current window, or are you looking to restock and extend your current window? you know, maximize over these next two years because everybody else is going to be a free agent. I think that's what they want to do. So I think they'll, they'll be looking for a package of now. Maybe a prospect or two mixed in, but if they do that kind of thing, they'll be looking for guys to contribute right now.
0: Okay, but that's fine. So now would be what? And who replaces Chris Bryant?
1: Nicholas Castellanos.
0: No, 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 no. It's why the Tigers put him in right field. Couldn't play third base. I'm not sure that that's what you want to do.
1: But? You, you I know. meant in the lineup, but you, but you oh, mean defensively? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Def- no, I'm talking about repl- not replacing him in the lineup. You are getting, if you're trading him, yeah. who's
1: replacing him at third base? <sighs> Ian like it, Happ with, a, with an offseason to focus on it? At third base? It's not it's not David Bode. That guy is not. It's not, not
0: going to be Anthony it, Rendon because you're not going to be able to afford no. both those players if you want to keep
1: Castellanos. And, Look at you. I brought you in to oh, yeah, uh, let's you listen, hijack. Have, I know, I know. Most seasons with 30 homers and 100 RBIs all time. For whom? Anybody. I've got the list. Most seasons with 30 and 100. A third base or period? Period. So Abreu at 30 and 100 now has four. Who has the most seasons in their career of 30 and 100 all time? History of baseball. It's no, hard. I mean, Albert Pujols comes to mind. He is tied for second with 12. Wow. Very good. Pujols is tied for second with 12. There are three other guys who had 12. Schmidt? Uh, no, No, Schmidt had nine. Schmidt had nine. Bonds? Bonds had 11.
0: So we're now looking at somebody who had 13. Oh, my goodness. 14.
1: 14. 14 seasons. Henry Aaron? Nope. Henry Aaron had 10, though. You're doing doing very well. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm missing the guy I want. Here, the the list of guys who had 10. Miguel Cabrera, David Ortiz, Rafi Palmero, Hank Aaron, Lou Gehrig all had 10. Bonds is the only one with 11. There's four guys with 12. You mentioned Pujols. Manny Ramirez had 12. Jimmy Fox had 12. Babe Ruth had 12. Oh, Babe Ruth had 12. Wow. Uh, 14. He's the bane of your Sunday night existence.
0: My goodness. For some reason, I just can't think of that. The bane
1: of your Sunday night broadcasting uh, um, baseball existence. Sunday nights on Espen. No, you're kidding him. Alex Rodriguez oh, has goodness. 14 seasons of 30 and 100.
0: His name would not have rung the bell. Yeah, that? that's
1: interesting, isn't it? Yeah. He's the guy. Um, Sammy Sosa had nine seasons like that.
0: Yes, and, and with Flintstones, too. <laughs> He's not alone. There's a lot of
1: vitamins on that list. That I got to go. Gave. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, George. Thank you. It's a former host of Hit and Run who happens to be wandering the hallways, and it wasn't Connor McKnight. Uh, I'm Matt Spiegel. It is Hit and Run on 670. The score, bottom of the hour, was brought to you by Northwestern Football. Joined Big Ten Coach of the Year, Pat Fitzgerald, and the Big Ten West Champion, Northwestern Wildcats, this fall at Ryan Field. Matchups include Ohio State, Michigan State, and Iowa. Season and single game tickets on sale now at nusports.com. Eno Saris from The Athletic is next on uh, Trends in Development. I think you will find interesting. Keep it right here. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours